Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I am Ben with uh, Noel the Ghost Brown. And uh, Ben the Apparition Bolin. Oh, thank you. Yeah, How yeah. about Scott the Specter Benjamin? Oh, I like it. I like it. Uh, you know what, though? i got to be honest with you. Today's topic title is a little bit deceptive if you don't really know what these vehicles are. It's a cool title, but the title itself pales in comparison to the story behind it. Yeah, because, you know, the way we are, I mean, we, we have something that's called the ghost cars, the Pontiac ghost cars. You yeah. think that there's going to be a ghost story with it, an urban legend of some kind, uh, right. some type of... Uh, um, association with the afterworld in some way with these cars somehow you know right, like, uh, like a, we, we've done a lot of stories like that yeah we've done we've done stories about uh mysterious disappearances of vehicles for instance cursed vehicles like hearse like vehicles james uh, james dean's porsche mm-hmm. was supposedly cursed um hearses that were supposedly cursed after mm-hmm. uh the, the vehicles went out of service things like that so we've done a lot of of uh of urban legend type uh cars that are truly uh or they are considered um, haunted in some way or right. something like that. That's not the case with the cars we're going to talk about today. And I would think that a lot of our listeners are probably already familiar with these because they kind of made the rounds in the in the auto blogs uh, three or four years ago yeah. uh, with the sale of one of the cars that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that was around uh, 2011. So, Scott, what makes these Pontiac cars ghost cars? Ah, this is interesting. Okay. Instead of using a standard, the standard steel material that they would use for the exterior of the vehicles, uh-huh. they used plexiglass. Plexiglass. So you could see into the vehicle. Into the vehicle. It was uh, as if it's, uh, as if it's just a, um, a completely see-through vehicle that you're, you're looking at with x-ray vision. Yeah. Perfect and, and that's what made it cool. And there's, you gotta remember, these are cars from, uh, the late 1930s. Early 1940s, well, 1940, mm-hmm. um, there are two of them that we'll talk about. And we'll talk about one in particular, and then the other one is, uh, well, there's a bit of a mystery at the end. That we'll get uh, to. But, yes. but this is early, early on in uh, the, uh, I guess, can you call it technology, the, the technology, the advancement of mm-hmm. um, these these plastic um, substitutes for glass. And that's what plexiglass was. We're talking about the trademark um, brand version of plexiglass here. Right, yeah, because this, this might startle some people to know. Uh, we're going to talk about the material a little bit first. Uh, plexiglass is not a new thing. It is very old. It is, uh, it's safe to say it's older than most of you guys listening to the podcast right now. Very safe to say. Yeah, it was, uh, developed in 1928. Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's shocking actually. I yeah. mean, I would, I would not think that 19, in 1928 they were working on plexiglass. It seems to me, like this is something that would uh, would have come about in the 60s or 70s. Even. Right, yeah. Something about it seemed, I don't know, it just feels like it would have been more recent. But as you and I have found on so many episodes of Car Stuff, a lot of the really fascinating technology is way older than you would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing that would be, that is known as a name brand plexiglass, this substance was developed, uh, as we said, in the late 20s by several different chemists who were working independently. There's Walter Bauer, William Chalmers, and a guy named Otto Rome. Yeah, and 
all independent of one another as right, well. Yeah. So, so these guys are all working on the same thing, as as happens with many, many inventions. Sure, typewriters, for instance. It, it is so strange how they, they develop at the exact same point in history independently. And then, you know, somebody finally comes to market with the product that they can, they can then trademark. And that is exactly what, uh, what Roman Haas company did in 1933. So this is, uh, five years after the advent of the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, they finally developed a product that they were, they were confident enough with to, uh, to be able to, to trademark that product. And they brought it in as, uh, into the marketplace as Plexiglass, the trademark brand name. Right. So, yeah, it's important for us to note that Plexiglass is one of those things that started off as a brand name and now has become a general term for a substance. But Plexiglass is pretty impressive stuff. Uh, now, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Uh, listeners, uh, Scott and I get together a little bit before the podcast sometimes to uh, walk through something, especially if we think there might be a hidden bear waiting to jump out at us, you know, uh, and there often is, and there often is. Yes, sir. Uh, so we aren't going to go too far into the chemistry, but just to give you a, a high level view of this plexiglass, of course, is not actually a glass. Uh, what it is, is a thermoplastic and it's, it's, uh, it's got a very high transparency rate in excess of 90%. Uh, it is, um, <clears throat> chemically speaking, it is a synthetic polymer of methyl methcrylate. So this is by no means glass. The name is incorrect. The name only alludes to how transparent it is. It is, however, a good substitute for glass in many cases, not mm-hmm. every case. I mean, it's a transparent, tough, flexible plastic that, uh, that you can see through, of course, yeah. um, you know, very well. It has, uh, as you mentioned, I think it was a, a high level of uh, transparency. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that other companies would would have an interest in in using this new product this new uh, material in place of uh you know the, the standard typical glass that can shatter and that can uh, can leave splinters in uh in people and, right. you know what i'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because <laughs> because when we talk about um uses of of plexiglass mm-hmm. and and we'll just quickly run through we'll laundry list this real quick um one of the things we'll find out is that uh that it Aviation, the the uh, the field of aviation uses this a lot. I mean, it, yeah. in fact, it started in World War II, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'll get to that in just a second here. But um, just some common uses, I guess, for plexiglass, and then we'll get into these uh, these cars. For so sure. let's think about all these different places you see it: aquariums, mm-hmm. ice hockey rink, you know, like the uh, the, the spectator glass yeah, section, yeah, you know, the yeah. above the boards area. That stuff needs to be uh, break proof. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? I've seen it shatter, though. I think you hit it in just the right spot; it, it will break, but it won't cause the the damage that glass will. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, viewports in submarines. Exterior mm-hmm. headlight lenses in cars and trucks, we see that a lot now. Aircraft canopies, uh, like, you know, in World War II aircraft, which I'll talk about again in just a second here. Sure. Lighthouse lenses, which we just talked about in our traffic signal. Uh, oh, episode. yeah, that makes sense. The yeah. Fresnel lenses, remember? Yeah. Uh, those are made of, sometimes those are made of uh, of plexiglass. And it has uh, medical uses, too, right? Yes, it does. Um, get this, eye lens implants that are necessary after cataract surgery. So you can actually wear plexiglass on your eye. I mean, I think they were initially used... Um, for, uh, for, I want to say like hard contact lenses, you know, the kind that were not flexible like oh, we have now. Oh, like the gas permeable ones. Yeah, or not the soft contact lenses, yeah. but the hard contact lenses, I believe, were initially made of plexiglass. And I don't know if a type of plexiglass. Right. Um, but here's, here's this is where we get back into the World War II stuff. And I read this somewhere that they found out that it has a compatibility with the human body. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometime around World War II. And the reason they found this out was because, um, an ophthalmologist, his name was Sir Harold Ridley. Um, who was, um, I don't know if he was actually a World War II RAF pilot or if he had, uh, had experience with these RAF pilots, but I think maybe he was treating some of these pilots. Uh, these guys would come back with splinters, uh, from the windows being shattered, you know, when they were oh, shot out during yeah. the war. So, you know, let's say that, um, uh, these guys are in, uh, supermarine, you know, Spitfire fighters and they had, um, you know, these plexiglass side windows. Well, when the side windows would get shot out, they would get, and this is awful, they would get shards of this stuff in their eyes. Oh, man. And he found that actually that was a better case scenario than was the glass shards that would come out of, uh, you know, um, some of the other aircraft, like like the Hawker Hurricane, maybe, for, uh-huh. for example. Um, those guys had more serious issues when, when the glass would enter their eye. It just wasn't quite as compatible with the human body. It wasn't rejected uh, the way glass would be. Um, so there's all kinds of uses for it. Um, police, oh, police vehicle windows in some cases, not always, but like riot control vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. There's also, oh, the roof of the Houston Astrodome. 
uh, you know, the the skylight that was uh, that was in the uh-huh. Houston Astrodome. Yeah. That's, that was a uh, huge, huge skylights made out of plexiglass, and a lot of a lot of skylights that might be at a house or an office that you go to. How about laser discs? You remember the old laser disc, the old uh, the old media that that preceded, or I mean, maybe it was in in the same time frame as uh, the initial CD releases. You know, mm-hmm. like compact discs. Yeah, uh, the old laser discs were those giant uh, CD looking. They're, they're the size of records. Yes, they were huge, and those were those were uh, a, a form of plexiglass as well. Oh, that's um, crazy. Okay, some other quick things, and we'll move on. Yeah. Uh, dentures, because, of course, you can have them in your mouth without any kind of ill effect, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, tanning beds, you know, the, the glass that you, you oh, lay okay. on top yeah. of. Bone cement, which I found very interesting. Oh, however, when they make the cement, which they can patch, uh, you know, pieces of missing bone or, you know, join bone together. Yeah. It works great for that. The problem is when it's curing, it heats up to something like 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so that can be really, really, tr- you know, wow. problematic, I guess, yeah. in the human body because it's like, well, it's 82.2 degrees Celsius. So, you know, if you, if you want to put that in perspective, I mean, uh-huh. it's like, uh, it's like a, it's a, like a warm oven, I guess, inside your body. And I don't know how long that lasts. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it probably depends upon where, where the break is or where that repair is being made. Mm-hmm. I, I have one side note that doesn't really have too much else to do with this before we move on to the cars, but there, uh, the mention of, plexiglass material and the discovery of how it splinters in the eye and how it can be used for contact lenses. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of something that I had heard about. And I don't know if you had heard about this before. That's so fascinating just to show what this material can do. It's a a thing called orthokeratology. So you know how people wear contact lenses. Like I'm wearing a pair of contact lenses now to correct my vision. Orthokeratography is sort of the opposite of that because I wear these during the day and I take them out when I go to sleep, right? With this, they have like these hard, um, the, these hard contacts that you put into your eye at night while you sleep and it shapes your eye. The, the rigid gas permeable lens shapes your eye into a better focus and then you take it out in the morning and just walk without it. So I'm interested to know if that is plexiglass as well because when I first heard that, Although it was, you know, like a licensed optometrist who told me this, I, I thought, what, what kind of game is this guy trying to run? That's pretty fascinating, but I wonder if it's painful. I mean, I wonder, it has to be. If it's shaping I, your eye at night, I mean, it sounds like it would be painful. Yeah, I obviously didn't sign up for okay, it. Okay, now I know a lot of people are probably saying, get to the cars, get, <laughs> get to the cars. To the cars. But, but let me tell you, I got one more question for you, and I and, and this is it, and then we'll get to the cars, I promise. Um why, you know, with all these uses that we're talking about, you know, you can think of all the examples we've given you, aquariums and ice hockey rinks and medical uses and, um, you know, uh, musical instruments and, you know, some clothing accessories, things like that, whatever uh-huh. they're, it's used for. You might think that it might make a good building material too, right? You might be able to, you know, why not construct uh, the whole front end of a building or the ceiling, the entire sure. ceiling of a building with plexiglass? Why would you not do that? Because it's it's possible, right? Yeah, what, well, okay, but there's an answer, huh? Yeah, it turns out there's not, there's a very good reason why you would not want to do this. And, there, and the, the example points to something called the Summerland Disaster that happened in 1973 on the Isle of Man. And they had created um, this, this Summerland Leisure Complex. Uh, it was on the Isle of Man again in the, in the I think it was in the early 1970s, late 1960s, when they were developing it, when it actually happened. This disaster happened in 1973. And this is awful, Ben. It killed 50 people, mostly people that were on vacation from the UK. Whoa. It injured, it seriously injured another 80. And it was the, this building, it was this entertainment complex that had just about everything. I mean, it had, um, you know, spas and it had um, areas for kids to play. It was it was multi-level complex with rooms, you know, rooms for guests and everything. Right. Um, okay. I, I can't even really put a clear picture in your mind unless you really see it. So the place was called... Uh, the Summerland Leisure Complex, again, the Isle of Man in the 1970s. And if you really want to understand what happened there, why uh, why this event was so tragic and what role plexiglass had to play in this tragedy, uh-huh. take a look at an article from the BBC that was uh, printed on the date of the 40th anniversary of the, of the fire where they interviewed some of the survivors of this thing. And, uh, again, that was from 19 – I'm sorry, this was, happened in 1973, but the article is from August 2nd, 2013, and it was called – Summerland Fire Survival Recalls Horror Inferno. And that, uh, again, it's just a, a real short article. It doesn't take long to read, but it gives you a great idea of why plexiglass is maybe not the best material to, uh, to, you know, create the entire front end of a building or the entire roof section of a building. 
Did it um, catch fire? It did, and it and, and the thing is, it melted and dripped on people that were trying to escape. Oh my gosh! And uh, you know, the place was designed poorly to begin with, but this just uh, this just you know furthered that uh, that that horrific tragedy. I mean, it was it, there's a lot to this story. Take a look at it. Um, but that's one reason why you won't see a lot of plexiglass in modern buildings. And when uh, when the good folks at Pontiac decided to create this ghost car, the first of the ghost cars, because remember, again, there are a couple, uh, they never really had any plans for this to be a production car, which is sad. I, I would have loved to see them on the road. Yeah, I think probably people initially looked at them and thought, well, you know, Pontiac's going to start building clear cars. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's an, it's a neat looking display and I'd love to drive one of those on the road, but Pontiac never had that idea. Their thought behind this, the whole, the whole idea, the whole genesis of this, of this, uh, this project was that they could then show the inner workings of the car. They could show how right. the windows rolled up and down. They could show the, the, uh, the, the, at the time, complex bracing that was uh, was meant for security and stability in the vehicle. Right. Yeah. Oh, uh, we should also say, yeah, the the chassis is visible and the chassis is not plexiglass. Yeah. And so you're seeing through the car like X-ray vision, like yeah. we, we mentioned before. And, and people love this because, you know, they had seen cutaway models up until this point. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I love a good cutaway model. I think they're really cool. However, I think that this this design, this uh, this this clear design that goes over everything and you get to see everything that way. It's not, you know, half of it's not missing. And when you see it move, you don't really uh, get a feel for exactly all of what's happening. Right. You get to see half of the action. In this case, you get to see everything underneath. So you could open the doors, you could sit inside of it and you could look through the dash. Um, yep. You can get in. And of course the, the top looks like a giant sunroof. That's all it is really. <laughs> but um, you get to see the, uh, the bracing in the doors. You get to see the, the trunk latch mechanism and how that works. And, and uh, we should mention while we're talking about working, this is a working car. Yeah. You can watch the engine as it, as it's working, as you're driving the vehicle. This is, it's a really interesting idea. And I don't think we've mentioned what it was used for really, because they, they built two of these cars and right. I guess we might as well let the cat out of the bag now because these, uh, um, the, these cars were built for two separate events right around the same time. The first one, and the one we're talking about mainly here today, is a 1939 Deluxe 6 four-door touring sedan. Mm-hmm. And this vehicle, just we should note this, was was later updated with a 1940 clear plexiglass nose clip. Right. Uh, so they, you know, at some point said, well, that looks like our old product. Let's get something new on there. So they did that. Yeah. Uh, but that's inconsequential at this point. And that was built for... Um, an event in New York, right, Ben? Yeah, the uh, New York World's Fair from 39 to 40, uh, specifically General Motors had their Highways and Horizons exhibit, which is this futuristic look at the possibilities of General Motor vehicles. Yeah, and you know what? There were some other um, peaks at the, uh, as, as one place put it, other peaks at the future in, in the uh, in this preview of mm-hmm. progress uh, that, that GM put on. Now, remember, this is the time when Futurama is happening. I think yeah. it was uh, who's that guy Norm uh, Norman Belgetes uh, who founded or who had the idea of uh, the Futurama. But this uh, this preview of progress also had other inventions along with it, not just the uh, the clear glass cars. It also had things like um, you know yarns made of milk and glass that bends and something <laughs> called the frigotherm that cooks and freezes at the same time and a talking fr- uh, flashlight that transmitted speech over a beam of light. I would love to see how they made I that would, work. Yeah, I would love to but, see but that. But all this cool, um, you know, uh, I don't know, futuristic stuff from the, the 19, uh, the 1940s, mm-hmm. early 1940s, mm-hmm. that, you know, they always said, well, we're going to see this in 20 years. Right. It's, and Well, it's always, it's always at least not now. Yeah. It's always at least 10 years And away. we're not quite to the flying car era yet, you know, when uh, <laughs> in the 1950s when they started promising that or late 1940s, yeah. but, but close to it. I mean, this, uh, you know... How do you make a talking flashlight? I mean, I'd love to see what that's all about. I don't know exactly what's going on. I would also, at the risk of sounding cynical, ask why you would make a talking flashlight. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. It's just a new method of, of, of you know, um, communicating with one another. It's, because at the time, yeah. all you had was really just, uh, you know, all you had was a telephone. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. 
Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Yeah, that's true. And it's a great, it's a, it's a great concept to explore. And you guys know GM is, is huge now, was huge then too. They had other, um, I guess what's the word? Other divisions, Scott, uh, marketing their stuff like, a uh, diesel electric passenger locomotive, um, Frigidaire, Frigidaire, excuse me, had his first window mounted room, uh, air conditioner. Uh, a year beforehand, and they were just demonstrating more stuff. Mm-hmm, exactly right. So they also had um, there was some other stuff there. I think Dupont was uh, also dis- displaying some things. Um, uh-huh. uh, who else? I want to say that um, Kodak. Uh, Kodak. No, Kodak. I believe was the year prior. Okay. And I think that it was uh, Viewmaster. Viewmaster. Uh, and Viewmaster. And the reason you're thinking of Kodak, Ben, is because like it was like four years prior to this World Fair when Kodak came out with color film. And color film made possible the tiny little Viewmaster, uh, you know, the, uh, um, what do you call them? The discs, I guess, that you would put inside uh-huh. a Viewmaster yeah, to, yeah. to view in, uh, stereoscopic, uh, vision so mm-hmm. that you felt like you were there. Um, there's, you know, one thing that we, we didn't really talk about here, and we're not going to right now, right? Okay, at this point, sure, too, sure. too much is going on right now. We're too, we're in too deep. Oh, man. But, um, <laughs> world fairs are just, Infamous or famous for yeah. uh, revealing or, or um, you know, yeah, I guess revealing to the public for the first time a lot of innovative ideas and products. Yeah, I, I wish there were um, I wish there were some more World's Fair uh, type of festivals around in our local area because I would be at them all the time. And the thing is, you know, I, and this is one thing I didn't know until I really kind of was digging into this story is that, you know, there might be what they call, you know, World's Fairs in quotes. There might be three of them happening at one time in one year, right? Somewhere yeah. on the globe, and this is throughout here. You can go back and look at a list of of when you know the World's Fairs happens, where they were held. Um, you know, maybe some of the uh, interesting uh, things that they revealed or they uh, they they um, launched into the marketplace. Uh, yeah. Because you know, um, just for example, that uh, that book that you and I both love, the one about uh, the Chicago World's Fair in eighteen ninety three, the Devil in the White City. That's the book. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you find that uh, you know that was the the first time that anybody ever saw a Ferris wheel, right? Yeah, and that was the first time that anybody ever tried Cracker Jack for the first time. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, there are a couple like foods. Yeah, totally there's good. there's some amazing stuff happening at, at these fairs, and it's it's that way all the time. Oh, and fun fact, Scott. 
on the day that we're recording this, uh, which we're recording this toward the end of April, this is actually the anniversary of the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. Is it really? Uh huh. And the next one coming up for anybody who's globe trotting, uh, or lives in the area, uh, is the Milan World's Fair or Italy's Expo, uh, this year. And I don't think I have the exact date there, but, uh, for our bosses, if you're listening, they might have some cool car stuff, so send us out. Of course. Good to know. Good, <laughs> Good to, to know. know. All right. So, so, so it's a big deal. And, and there's multiple events yeah. happening at one time. And the reason I tell you this is because, you know, we just said that, you know, the, the first one, the uh, 1939 Deluxe 6 four-door touring sedan was built for the 1939 New York World's Fair. At the same time, or just slightly later than that, I guess, they put together a second vehicle, Pontiac did, right. uh, for the 1939 to 1940, same year, Golden Gate International Exposition in San Francisco. Now, that's not exactly a World's Fair, but it's uh, yeah. it's this big exhibition. And uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of these things happening at one time somewhere on the earth. Yeah, and that wasn't a um, that wasn't a 39 Deluxe. That was a 40 Torpedo 8 four-door sedan. Yeah, so slightly different vehicle. Um, you know, it's a new model year. And uh, we don't want to really get into the weeds too much on, uh, on, the, on the differences between the two vehicles sure, at this sure. point. But in fact... There's not a whole lot known about that car. And that's again, <laughs> we keep we keep foreshadowing that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Thing. Okay, so, um, oh man. Okay. So so uh, when when we ask why they chose the um, no these these cars were both built by the Fisher Body Division, right? Yeah, and I think that's important to to note here. It wasn't it wasn't the plexiglass company that built the vehicles. It right. was the it was them who provided the the sheet material. They gave them the raw materials, and then Fisher Body. Um, which is a, uh, a coach building division of General Motors at the time. Um, they, they built the actual, the, the actual plexiglass bodywork that went on these cars. They uh-huh. formed the panels, they polished them, they put them together. And, um, I think there's even, there's film that shows them actually doing this. Yeah. Which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, but according to, uh, Pontiac historian John A. Gunnell, which, by the way, Scott, sounds like a dream job. Uh, according to the Pontiac historian, uh, Mr. Gunnell here, that plexiglass was not chosen for any kind of engineering or design advantage. It was chosen solely for its transparency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that's, again, what we said before is that they never really intended to build, you know, plexiglass cars from Pontiac, not coming off the line in, in you know, a clear form. Right. The idea was just to show the inner workings because there was a lot going on. They they had again, as we said, the you know automatic door locking mechanisms and concealed door hinges. Yeah. Um. They had you know front suspension parts and safety hood locks and mm-hmm. sealed beam headlamps and um the column gear shift controls and you know all that stuff. The steering gear, yeah. all that is what they wanted to showcase. They wanted people to know what's going on under the car, and and it was just a unique, eye catching way to draw some of those crowds in. And by the way. Those crowds were huge. I mean, I think something like um, I want to say this is this is a number that uh, is just remarkable for the time. There were something like forty four million visitors to that fair in the nineteen you know between nineteen thirty nine and nineteen forty. Wow. Forty four million, and think about America at that time. The population wasn't that big. I don't have the stats right now, right. but but these are people coming from all over the world to go to these because these were these were that grand, that huge, that um, that. Uh, Extraordinary, that, that elegant, uh, yeah. all the words you can think of, all the superlatives you can think of. It's an historic it. moment. Exactly right. And people felt that they had to be there and to be part of it. And, you know, this one in particular, I mean, to be held in New York City is the first World's Fair to be held in New York City. And it's all the way in 1940. They had been held elsewhere in the United States. But to be held in New York City, that's uh, there's there's something significant to that. And right at the end of the Depression, right. uh, there's a lot going on for this particular fair. But 44 million that's a lot of people to that come through the doors. Amazing, uh, and and the car they were the car they were seeing there, of course, was um, other than its body and one small detail, it was pretty much identical to uh, the, any other deluxe six you would find. That one small detail that was different is that uh, the ghost car did not have insulating material that would normally be inside the inner surface of the steel body for these production models. So some of the, you know, just a, a short list of these other parts that are, uh, that were a little bit different in the, uh, in the ghost car and, and some of the things that actually led to it being called the ghost car because, you know, it wasn't initially called that. I think it was, uh, you know, something, they probably just called it the plexiglass car, the, the, uh, the plexiglass Pontiacs or something like yeah, that. Yeah, ghost car was like the nickname, yeah. the street name. Yeah, exactly right. And, and this came about because some of these elements that I'm going to tell you about 
kind of lent themselves to that that image of a ghost vehicle. Um, a lot of a lot of clever details in this car. So the, things like the hoses and the grommets and the mats, the running boards, even the U.S. Royal tires were molded in white rubber. So this has white tires, has a lot of white rubber parts inside it on it. Oh, that's um, right. So it's not black. It's not like it stands out against that clear plastic. You're right. It, I totally forgot. It's ghosted below it. And then things like the you know the engine block, the horns, right. the air cleaner, and other mechanical parts parts were painted white as well. So yeah. they were making some of the metal underneath instead of it being, you know, the, uh, I guess, metal-looking parts right. or, or, you know, where they would be blue on this vehicle mm-hmm. in in, uh, in production, they made them white. And then they also uh, included some chrome where it would normally not be found. Yeah, right? like nuts and bolts. And then other things had uh, had a copper wash to them mm-hmm. uh, so that they had kind of a uh, just a, a different, unique appearance. And you wouldn't find that on a typical production car because, no, not at all. you know, mostly they were hidden. Uh, right. Mostly those components are, are completely out of sight. I mean, other things, you know, some of the parts that they made white intentionally, you would see. Uh, however, you know, like the tires and the uh, the running boards. However, um, you know, some of these fasteners and some of the little the little details really make the difference in this car. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. And this is an interesting fact that you can bring up if you are having this plastic car, ghost car conversation with your friends after this show. You drop this bomb on them. This is not the first plastic car. The first kind of plastic car uh, actually came from one of our favorite people, Henry Ford. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, now. The difference is this is the first clear plastic car, full-size plastic car. I mean, you could put all these uh, these modifiers onto it, but 
but it is the first full-size clear plastic car. Right. That's an important di- distinction that is to make. a huge difference. Because Henry Ford was working with those, uh, you remember the soybean plastic cars? Uh-huh, yeah. Where he would uh, swing an axe and it would bounce off the uh, off the panel? Yeah. We t- we, I know we've talked about that in the past on this show. I'm, I'm positive of it. Mm-hmm. But that vehicle, which he was working on prior to World War II as well. Right. Um, and uh, finally patented in 42. Yeah, patented in 42, but then World War II came around, interrupted that whole process, and when the war ended... There was just no interest in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, it just uh, it just didn't pan out. I mean, it just kind of went away. The, I think the, part of it is the industrial demand for steel uh, would quickly diminish. Absolutely. That was what yeah. it was. I mean, be- before that, we were in uh, we were in gathering mode, you know, trying to gather all the metal we could. And it was, uh, you know, um, right. how to conserve the metal. And, and, and that was a huge deal. And, and, you know, actually, it was a really good idea for him to, to come out with that vehicle right then. Yeah. If, if he'd only gotten it in production during the war. But uh, but then again, all those factories were were switched over to war production. You know, they were making right. tanks, they were making airplanes, they were making gun turrets, they were making all kinds of uh, you know the uh, I guess the machines of war. Uh huh. And that that, point. that was uh, one of that's still one of my uh, favorite episodes we've done on the show was uh, how World War II changed the auto industry. Mm-hmm. You know, which you can find at carstuffshow.com. Going to go ahead and slip that shameless plug in there. Way to go! <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, so. What's weird is we, we talked about Rom and Haas uh, being the manufacturers of this substance, but uh, we don't have any primary source proof, right? It's still a little bit of speculation. If you're reading, if you're reading up on this, you'll see that um, people remember it. We're all, we're all but certain that RNH supplied this, uh, but Gunnell, although he says it's reasonable to assume that RNH had supplied the sheet stock to Fisher, um, we're not, we don't have ex- like proof, like an invoice or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think it had to be them at the time. And as you said earlier, uh, really they were just supplying the material. They were not molding. They were not crafting. They did not fabricate. And to make something like this isn't cheap. No, no, by no means. So in 1939, uh, the cost of this vehicle to build was something around $25,000. Not an exact number, but ballpark $25,000. Yeah, yeah. In 1939 dollars, you know, $25,000. Today in 2015, if you want to adjust those dollars, or maybe let's go back a year because I'm not sure when this article is written. Sure. But uh, right, right around, let's ballpark this thing because I think it's probably gone up. Let's say yeah. it's $400,000. Okay. I think the article said three ninety, but I'm guessing that for inflation, somewhere right around four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think that's that's good ballpark. But um, so it's it wasn't cheap to build. It wasn't terribly expensive to build in the grand scheme of things because we right. know that projects even now cost five, ten times that amount. You're going to put out a show car for, let's say, the auto show circuit. They're going to build a uh, concept vehicle, and this is kind of what this is. It's kind of a concept vehicle. Yeah. On a different level. It's not It's not something that they ever intended to build or get the audience reaction to or anything. They wanted a dramatic effect, but there was never any intent to build a plexiglass car. Yeah, it's more of a marketing um, a marketing campaign. Yeah, and I think it went well. It, went, it fit perfectly in the Futurama, um, what do we call it before, the... Uh, the, the oh, Highways and Horizons. Highways and Horizons. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few different names I've seen yeah. thrown around for this. Uh, the um, the preview of progress. The preview. Yeah, of progress, all that yeah. stuff. It fit right perfectly in with that with that exhibition. And of course, they had to do something like this. Right, and we know it was successful because they went on, as you said, and built that, or they they believed in the idea at least because they had the the second ghost car uh, at the Golden Gate Expo. Yeah, near San Francisco. Uh-huh. And, uh huh, and. The the stats on like we have the engine stats. So the first one, uh, the Deluxe Six had an eighty five horsepower, two hundred twenty two point seven cubic inch L head six cylinder. Um, none to sneeze at for the time. Uh, but the Torpedo Eight had an even meaner engine, hundred and three HP, two hundred and forty. Well, I'll just call it two hundred forty nine cubic inch uh, L head eight cylinder and a high compression cylinder head. All right, so probably I'm I'm going to guess. I haven't looked up the stats or yeah. anything. I'm going to guess that's just production. That's a, that's exactly yeah, that's the way they would production. come out of the factory. So yeah. if you were to buy a a steel-bodied version of these cars, that's what you would get. Yeah. Okay. So they did build this second car and uh not a whole lot is known about that car, right, Ben? Yeah, this is where it gets uh intriguing. If you weren't intrigued already, so Scott, what what's the story about this one? The strange thing about this is that the the, the 
fate of that car is completely unknown. They don't know where that car ended up. And this has happened so many times. And I don't understand exactly how this happens, but um, the, the last documented sighting of this car was at that show, at the Golden Gate Exposition in 1940. Yeah. That's when people said, we saw it, it's, it's documented that it was here. Beyond that, they don't know where it went. Did somebody take it home with them? Did they put it in a barn somewhere? Right. Did uh, did they piece it out for some reason? Did they? It's just unknown where it went to. It. It did not go to any kind of museum. Nope. I don't know if GM still has it. Maybe they do. Maybe they're not telling anybody about it. But um. But you know, why would they? You know where? Why it, would they not? Yeah, I, I know. And you know where it probably would be if GM had it. It probably would be at that Heritage Center. Yeah. Because exactly. I've seen articles written about the ghost cars from the Heritage Center, but they, you know, they themselves say. The whereabouts of this car is unknown. So if they're if they are hiding it, they're keeping it very good secret. I mean, they're they're even saying, "Oh, geez, we don't know where that is." But you know, don't look behind this curtain. <laughs> right. Pay no attention. No, I, I don't think that's happening. I, I think I somebody think so at the either. show, you know, someone. I think someone took it home. Yeah, I, I think I, someone took it home. If it is, I mean, there are a lot of cars at the Heritage Center, but they're pretty good about keeping track of them so it seems weird that they would be missing one that's in their collection you know what when i say i don't know how this happens i i kind of get it i kind of there's some confusion about you know when 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 something like this is being torn down and something is as large as a uh as a world's fair yeah imagine the the uh I guess you can call it chaos, organized chaos that's happening. Hopefully. Uh, when people are trying to get their products out, you know, manufacturers are coming back, they're ripping up the carpet or flooring or whatever they have. They're, they're, they're removing, you know, the products, whether it's a car, whether it's, um, you know, a new refrigerator that they're, they've got on display at the time yeah. in 1940 or whatever it happens to be. There, there's a lot of, um, you know, people don't know who's supposed to be taking what and it might be easy. It might be for someone to get in that car and just simply drive it out and drive it home. You're talking about a heist? Strange, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> heist. I mean, I guess that's kind of what it would be. But, you know, maybe it was planned out. Maybe it was a local Pontiac dealer. Maybe it was, yeah. uh, I don't have any kind of or maybe, proof of any of maybe this. Maybe somebody was just supposed to um, hold it somewhere for storage and it fell through the cracks. But the thing is, if it is a heist, and I love the idea, that is just such a difficult heist. At the very least, it's a long con because it's not as if you can drive that thing or sell it. Yeah, that's right. And here we are um, 75 years later. Yep. 75 years. It's been missing. So mm-hmm. what happened to that thing? It's got to show up and it's got to show up someday. Yeah. I, I would think that it would. I mean, something like this doesn't completely disappear. Someone will see it and understand what it is. I don't think it ended up in a junkyard. No. Is it possible, though, that it maybe ended up in, um, you know, someone's backyard out in the desert somewhere. Right. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, the sun bakes these things and it turns it all yellow, you know, it clouds it up yeah. because there's some, there's, you know, we'll talk about what happened to the, uh, to the Pontiac six in just a minute, but uh-huh. some of that happens with this one even as well. And that one is being well taken care of. Right. So, uh, we, we both love the idea of a mystery car and, I don't know about you, man, but whenever we're able to tell people in the audience, you know, that you have a chance of stumbling upon this car, um, I, you know, it makes my day. And I, I, I sincerely hope that uh, if you happen upon this or if you have a lead or a rumor or anything like that, then let us know, because I would love to hear some more. And as we're about to see with the uh, first car, with the Deluxe 6 Ghost, um, if this torpedo eight is still around then it desperately needs some maintenance oh it definitely does because when i tell you what happened to the six along the way you'll understand that you know upkeep of something like this is not very easy mm-hmm. and uh, again this was one that was being um I, I guess in a way babied i mean you can you could say that it was kind of uh, it was it was treated with velvet gloves you know it was uh, right. it was given the soft touch i guess by um by by the owners that owned it after the show and here's the way it went so after the World's Fair officially closed, and I think that was in late 1940, like October of 1940. Yeah. Um, th- this is interesting, Ben, because they say both of the ghost cars were displayed at Pontiac dealerships nationwide, according to the GM Heritage Center. However, we also know that the last documented sighting, the last proven sighting of the Torpedo 8 was at the Golden Gate Exposition. So if it went to a dealership, there it it really does become a ghost. We have no record of that. So where, you know, what happened to it at that point? You're right. So the last documented sighting of this thing was there. Okay, got it. That's the, uh, that's the asterisk, I guess, on this yeah, whole thing. Right. All right. So then, then after that, the original, after, you know, they, they went on this tour of Pontiac dealerships across the U.S., 
the original Deluxe 6 ghost car was displayed at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. from 1942 to 1948. So that's mm-hmm. a good six years where it just sat on display uh, for everybody to view after the World's Fair. Um, then later, of course, the styling became outdated and outmoded, and um, it was it was sold to a Pontiac dealership in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, a place called H&H Pontiac. And it stayed there until 1962. Mm-hmm. That's a long stay. I mean, yeah. that's actually quite a bit of time. But then in 1962, another Pennsylvania Pontiac dealer, a place called Arnold Motors in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, acquired the car from um, H&H Pontiac in Gettysburg. Right, yeah. And they made some changes to this. Now, for those of us in the crowd who are what I would call originalists, uh, who want to... Uh, to only only touch the car to preserve the car, right? The purists. Uh, the purists, maybe, is a better way. Uh, you guys are gonna you guys are gonna hate this because they put in full seats instead of these temporary kind of cutaway cushions. Oh, but is that so bad, really? Because then you can drive the car. Because that, that's the I think that may be the only part of the car that was actually cut away, the cushions, right? Uh, so you can see what's happening inside the seats because they can't make the seats out of plexiglass, obviously. Well, not comfortably. So, so this this dealership decided to put in the standard factory seats, and that's what they did. Yeah. So uh, it seems to make sense. That's a that's a reasonable upgrade in my in my opinion. And then and, it, yeah, it resurfaces. Um, a it, little more than a decade later? Yeah, it had, it had something called the, uh, the the Pontiac Oakland Club International um, in 1973. And this is at the first meeting of this. Now, that is a um, – I looked up what that is, and that is a, a gathering of Pontiac, Oakland, and I believe now GMC um, fans of, of – uh, you know, fans of that type of vehicle, those brands of vehicles. And they still get together. That, that still exists today. So in 1973, oh, cool. this was the first meeting of that. And this is where um, a guy named Don Burlap or Barlap – who was a restaurant, uh, restaurateur from Cumberland, Pennsylvania, owned the vehicle or bought the vehicle. Right. And this guy was a godsend for the Pontiac because uh, by this time, and this always surprised me, Scott, because you would think that going through two dealerships it would have been better taken care of. But by the time that Barlow buys this, uh, the plexiglass has become clouded with age. Now, anybody who's seen some older plexiglass knows that happens pretty easily. This does not surprise me one bit because the headlamp covers on our cars nowadays, you know, like since yeah. we don't have the old glass lenses that we put in. Right. The headlamp covers, how they, you know, how they oxidize and they become yellow with time and you yeah. can't see the headlight now. That's exactly what happened. But imagine that happening to the entire shell of the car. The whole car is so, kind of cloudy. So all the time that it was on display at these dealerships, it's probably out in the front showroom. You know, behind a, a plate of glass that doesn't right. filter any kind of UV or anything and allows all that sun just to, to beat down on the car probably, you know, day in, day out. And over time, it yellowed, as you would expect. And uh, so it was in need of some some uh, some restoration work at that point. So so Barlap takes it to a, a place called S&H Pontiac in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and they remove each of those plastic panels, uh, you know, polish them, they clean them, they wax them, they put them back on the car, and uh, and the car is ready to, to show again, once again. Uh, and I just have to say here, this this is just me complaining about something, but have, Scott, have you ever tried to clean plexiglass? Have you ever had to do that? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah. It is the worst, most tedious, like, um, I'm going to use a fancy word here, Sisyphean job, uh, like, you know, a Sisyphus rolling the, the stone up the hill and it falls and he has to roll it back up because I had one terrible summer where I was, I was working at this bookstore and, and the guy who worked there was really cool, but, uh, there was nothing for me to do. So he had me clean the plexiglass in the front windows. Yeah. And it's just, it's a pain. So kudos to these guys. Wow. I was, I was only talking on a smaller scale, like with the headlamp lenses. You know, oh, no. That's, that's its own kind of frustrating, irritating too. Oh my gosh, you're cleaning entire plate glass windows uh, you know, that, that were exposed to sun daily? Well, maybe I should say I was trying to clean them for yeah, a Yeah, I guess so. You know, I find that, um, you know, with some of those, okay, back to the garage art uh, yeah, yeah. stuff, a lot of those uh, those frames that I buy, you know, for the for the posters and stuff that I hang in my garage, uh-huh. a lot of them have a uh, plexiglass or an acrylic um, uh, covering. And if you so much as touch that with your finger, you know, after it's dusty, yeah, there's there's going to be a scratch there forever until you until you actually break out the uh, the polishing materials like you're talking about right. and try to work that scratch out. Good luck. I mean, you're better off just taking some compressed air and blowing it off and and hoping that over time 
you know, it stays yeah. relatively clean until, you know, you can pass them on to your next, uh, next of kin. To the next person. Who yes, has that's to, right. Who has to be responsible. Let them for deal it. with it in, uh, in, you know, 50 years from now. So, uh, so all that to say kudos to these guys. SNH Pontiac, luckily, and we can tell by some recent photos, they did a fantastic job and uh yeah and this is but yeah. that's back in the 1970s when they did that so this yeah. is they have actually been taking care of it since then. it's really. been out of the sun I yeah think. i think they knew what to do at that point well cuz yeah they sold uh because eventually barlop after he gets it cleaned up and restored he takes the car to dutch wonderland classic car auction in lancaster in 1979 yeah. right yeah and a collector a car collector there a guy named leo gephardt bought it and just a year later, so he hangs on to it just for a year, the, the car dealer, uh, Gephardt, sold it to a car historian and collector. His name was uh, Frank Kleps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's in Indiana. Yeah. So now and the car has moved from Pennsylvania to Indiana at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, this is weird because uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this yet, but when it was all fogged up and Barlop was saving it, it only had 70 miles on the odometer. Oh, we didn't mention that. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't expect that. You would think that, you know, over time, driving it, just just getting it in between the dealerships. Yeah, would, to would, and fro. You would think they would drive it to get it there, but I, I guess maybe they didn't. They might have trailered it there because 70 miles on the odometer in 1979. I mean, that's how long is that afterwards? That's um, that's uh, 30 years. Yeah, that's 30 a years time. of time and 70 miles on the odometer. So, so a year later... Gephardt sells it to this car historian, as I mentioned, Frank Kleps. Yeah. And Kleps owned the ghost car, uh, you know, I think it would have been from 1980 until 2010. Uh-huh. Um, and that's when Kleps passed away. Right, yeah. And during his time with the vehicle, uh, and Kleps was a racer. He uh, competed in the Great American Race uh, 10 times before and even won the Spirit of the Event Award. But even during the time he owned it, he put maybe 12 miles on it, probably 12? less. 12 miles. Yeah. He said 12. Yeah. Not 1200, not 12,000. No, 12. 12 miles. And, and the thing is, it was drivable. You could have driven it. And he owned the car for 30 years and he put 12 miles on it. Well, there are some problems of practicality, of course, uh, which, which we should go ahead and mention, which is that, uh, ro- rocks in the road can damage the, the body of the car, the mm-hmm. panels. Yeah. They can crack it or chip it. Yeah. Not to mention if you drive on a sunny day, um, we've all played with uh, magnifying glass when we were kids. Yeah, and this is one of the many reasons that I'm not a convertible fan uh, because you absolutely bake in the sunshine. When you have right. to stop the car at a stoplight, yeah, it's very uncomfortable. And I know I sound like an old, uh, you know, a grouch when I say stuff like that, but but honestly, I just prefer. You know, this is going back to an old argument, but I prefer hardtops over convertibles, and that's one of the reasons because you do just bake in the sunshine. So that that we think, um, and that's one of the things that uh, several authors have mentioned as uh, as the reason why uh, Kleps didn't drive it very often, why a lot of people didn't drive it very often, but people still wanted it because one of the most recent pieces of news we have about the Deluxe Six Ghost is actually really good news. Yeah, very good news. So in 2011, about a year after uh, Kleps passed away. Um, an anonymous bidder bought the ghost car for for three hundred and eight thousand dollars. That's pretty good, really, when you consider that it cost twenty five thousand dollars to build in nineteen thirty nine, which equals roughly mm-hmm. what do we say three hundred ninety thousand back yeah, then when this yeah, was written, but about four hundred thousand. Uh-huh. So that's actually a bargain. It's like you're getting twenty five percent off of the actual price of the car. I mean, that guy got a deal. Uh, that was at the RM auction sale. Uh, that was held uh, in concert with the Concours d'Elegance uh, in Plymouth, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, even the family who was sell, even the Kleps family doesn't know who bought the car. Yeah, that anonymous bidder remains anonymous. So they don't Maybe, know. Yeah. So they don't exactly know who owns it right now. It's a, it's kind of, again, I guess a bit of a mystery at this point. Maybe to put it with his Torpedo 8, what do you think? Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe, possibly. Be, now, that would be something. If those cars emerge... In uh, let's say ten years from now, and there's a pair of them, that would be really something. That would be incredible. Yeah. Now, the uh, you know we do we do know from the press release that RM Auctions, you know, I guess circulated prior to the auction, they said that the odometer had 86 miles on it at the time of the sale, which you know to me just means that maybe one of the Kleps kids drove it around a little. Yeah, and as far as condition goes, I mean, other than that, um, you know, there were a few chips and cracks as we mentioned because right. you know over the decades it happens, but structurally it was a sound vehicle. It was cosmetically clear as far as, you know, the way the glass appeared. Uh, it had its original 
all white U.S. Royal tires and white rubber running boards, so they hadn't been replaced or anything. Right. That's original. Yeah. Um, and the only recent mechanical work that they claim had been done was uh, they replaced the fuel lines at some point, and that was recent. And here we reach the end of the ghost story for now, right? Because we know that we we had some time with the Deluxe 6. It went around, and now it has been taken somewhere, uh, hopefully to a good home, right? Uh, maybe to someone who's even doing further repairs. Uh, I feel like if... I feel like if Jay Leno got it, he would have told us. I do, too. I think that he would have. I think this was something different. And not to have too much of a conspiracy here, Scott, but I do hope that the two cars are somehow in the same place. Yeah, somehow reunited or somehow, you know, they will show up together at some at some point. Wouldn't that be fantastic? That that would be shocking to have that happen. (laughs) But it would be really interesting to see as well. So, okay, here's my, uh, I guess, my my wrap-up, follow-up questions for the audience. I mean, when you look at this car, I mean, when you take a look at it, because you can easily find images of the car when RM Auctions was selling it, they they took a bunch of photos. Yeah. Um, So... Do you think that, you know, this, this plexiglass design is actually better than a cutaway design? Because I personally feel that it is. I think that you get to see the entirety of the, of the mechanisms. You get to see all of the actions that happen, you know, behind the panels. Yeah. Um, it, it just seems like it's a better way to do it than a cutaway. I know that, you know, cutaways are fascinating and I really do, I, I do enjoy them, you know, engines, things like that, where mm-hmm. something like this might not be possible. Um, but, but to see inside of a car like this, to be able to, to see the inner workings of a door or, even a simple thing like a hood latch, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a fair question. I think cutaways are good, but this is great. Yeah, and I wonder, and I, this is a couple of things, too, okay. and just a yeah, few yeah. more points. I wonder if this thing is difficult to drive. I mean, because <laughs> imagine if you are driving in this, and it, think about how disorienting it would be to be able to see the road in places where you would normally wouldn't see the road. Yeah. Um, you would you'd be able to see, uh, you know, bits of, like, you know, the uh, the median moving past you, through the doors and through the uh, through the A pillars and the B pillars and the C pillars, mm-hmm. all that stuff, it has to really affect, uh, you know, the, your concentration when you're trying to drive. I would think that it would be very disorienting, uh, possibly leading even to um, car sickness, of, you know, in some people, I would think. Right, yeah, because uh, it, uh, it is, as you said, disorienting. And also there's a comfortability or, excuse me, a sense of comfort in not being out there for display and you'd lose that if you're driving a transparent car. Oh, true. You know what I mean? Like how many, how many people have said, Oh, I've got to go somewhere, but I'm just going to a drive through. So it doesn't matter what I dress like or whatever. Ah, Think of wonder woman in her clear plane, her her invisible plane. Exactly. Her invisible jet. Yeah. How weird does that look? And that's what you would look like driving this car. I mean, it's, it's odd to think of it, but that's kind of what it would be like that, 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 you know, of course, made up invisible plane, but right. where is it, Ben? But um, <laughs> but but seriously, like it would be it would be really strange. I mean, and think about like uh, how difficult it would be to if you really own this car. Yeah, you wouldn't want to take it out in the sunshine uh, no. because you would have to go through that that polishing and and cleaning and waxing process so many times mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You know how quickly that happens on headlight lenses. Yeah. Um, it, just imagine the entire vehicle having that happen. And the last thing I don't want to mention is that you know, along with that car sickness issue. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that that distortion, that that strange motion around you, would cause that. And the reason I reason I brought that up even is because uh, many years ago, like in the mid nineteen nineties, had a friend or at a place where I worked, it was a coworker who had purchased a a brand new Dodge Neon, a Plymouth Neon, maybe I can't remember which Dodge or Plymouth. Okay, um, in, in like first model year, and not that it's a problem with the Neon, but the glass in this vehicle, the front glass, had a tiny imperfection in it. And I mean, it was like a little wave in the glass and it was right in that person's line of sight. Oh man. And she repeatedly told the dealership that there's a problem with this car. And here's the problem. Strange problem. I get a headache every time I drive it is what she said. And weird. That distortion in the glass was just enough to cause a, uh, like a, like a motion sickness, a, a, a car sickness feeling every time she drove the car. And this is a huge problem, right? So she repeatedly told the dealership, you know, I think something's happening with this windshield. It's not quite right. And they, I don't know how they check for such things, but I I would guess that it's some type of, uh, you know, uh, maybe even a printed uh, paper or something they hold up to show any kind of distortion in the glass. And sure enough, right where her vision, line of vision was, was this distortion. And they replaced the windshield for free for her. It was just a, a defect that 
you know, other people might not have picked up on, but she did. And, uh, and it paid off her that she, you know, picked up on it because she was able to get it replaced for free and there were no problems after that. Yeah. That's but, great. but I thought about that immediately when I thought about driving a, a car that it's not, not even glass, but it's plastic. So it's even more susceptible to, uh, you know, having, uh, these really strange curves in it that, you know, would, yeah. would really throw off your vision, would really yeah. mess with your mind when you're trying to drive. So, um, I, w- I would bet that that thing is a, a literal headache to drive. <laughs> Honestly. I know. Was, I know it's a corny way to end. I was, but I mean, that was just pretty good. <laughs> but it is probably a literal headache to drive that car. So, we hope that you enjoyed this. Would you drive a plexiglass car, despite the uh, several pragmatic reasons that doing so would be foolish, right? Uh, and uh, do you have, as we mentioned earlier, a lead for us on the fate of these two ghost cars? If so, let us know. If you'd like to hear more, you can always visit our website, carstuffshow.com. You can find Scott and I on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a suggestion for something we could cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. We've been getting some great listener email recently, right, Scott? Really good stuff, yes. So uh, we'd like to get some more of it. Go ahead and send us a line. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.